I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. No state has gone two straight weeks without an increase in COVID-19 cases. In at least 14 states, the rate of increase surpasses the average number of tests, meaning something more than increased testing accounts for the greater number of cases. Today, Florida reported its highest one-day total of new infections during the pandemic. The increase has halted Miami's phased reopening. Mayor Francis Suarez is with us. Mr. Mayor, what happened? What happened is we look at the data on a daily basis, but we analyze it on a weekly basis with the Department of Health, uh, with epidemiologists on our side, and with a biostatistician that we look at. The gating criteria established by the White House and by so many other organizations is what you have to have three criteria met to go into the next phase, which is a downward trajectory of, of new cases, downward trajectory of influenza-like reporting, uh, downward trajectory of percentage positive, and you have to have a healthy census. Well, unfortunately, on three of those metrics, we saw an up, upward swing instead of a downward swing. So we didn't think it was prudent and wasn't meeting the criteria to continue into phase three just yet. Um, we're not rolling back uh, any of the openings that we've already made, and we're not going into a stay-at-home order at this particular moment uh, because our hospitalization is stabilized at about a 62 to 66% capacity census. So we're monitoring that to see if any of these new cases uh, end up increasing our hospitalization, and then we may have to take uh, some other measures in the future. How worrying is it as you track these cases and notice, not just in your community, but in you know in all of South Florida, there does seem to be a, a fairly steady increase? It's worrisome. You know, obviously, you know, I, I said when we began the Stand Up Miami plan that there's two paths. There's the path of responsibility and the path of irresponsibility. And I think if we're responsible, we know that we can get beyond this. We've already seen it in the numbers. Um, unfortunately, taking a dramatic step like a stay-at-home order also created a depression-era-like unemployment. And that's something that we can't sustain as a country. We can't sustain that as a community. We can't sustain that as a government. But our residents, we need our residents to know what we know and be transparent about the information so that they can make decisions uh, and hopefully help us out. Are people just not adhering to the guidelines that you've previously suggested, mask wearing, social distancing, that kind of thing? We're definitely seeing a, a reduction, I mean, based on you know anecdotal evidence and uh, Instagram and, and, and Twitter and all the different uh, platforms that we see people sending videos on. There's definitely sort of a, a relaxing, it looks like, and maybe when you started opening, people started to relax. And we just wanted to send out the message that this is not a time to relax. To, in order to make the kind of progress that we need to make to fully open our economy, we have to continue to remain vigilant and disciplined. What's your best guess as to when the city might be able to move into its next phase? It really depends on the data. That's the way we've made our decisions. We're seeing for about 30 days a downward trend of about 13 cases per day. That downward trend over the last few weeks was slowing down to a, a decrease of seven uh, uh, cases per day a decrease to then four cases per day decrease. And now over the last two weeks, we actually have a 13 case per day increase. So it really depends on, on the data. And we're hopeful that people will respond and will uh, and the hospitalization remains remains stable. Uh, which it has right now. That's, that's, that's sort of our firewall. Wasn't warm weather supposed to help with this virus? It's certainly plenty warm in Miami. Oh, yeah, it's definitely warm. Um, I, I think that's, that was certainly the theory. But I also think that density and congregation has a, a negative effect, right? And, and so I think, yeah, warm weather maybe in and of itself is helpful. But when you combine, you know, I think social distancing is the most important thing, right? And, and wearing masks and making sure that, you know, you're not exposing yourself. I think those things are even more important than the weather. The weather can probably help, 
But if you're doing those other things, it, it probably just compounds on something that, that, that would already work. The mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. It seems American consumers are itching to get out there, though. Unleashed from coronavirus restrictions, in May they drove retail sales up nearly 18%. Marshall Cohen is chief retail analyst at NPD Group. This is the largest monthly increase on record. Yeah. You know, consumers are, are showing their resilience, number one. Number two, the ability to be able to feel, you know, 68% of consumers tell us they feel wealthier for those that are on unemployment, uh, that are collecting money from the government. Uh, so what we're seeing are consumers who are willing to save a little and spend a bunch. Is this just a, a government stimulus high, or, or is this actually sustainable then? What we're seeing is the consumer who's feeling wealthier in several different ways. One is for those who are on employment, they're getting extra money every week. Add in the stimulus money that the government's providing, and the consumer uh, who isn't working, who's on unemployment, is feeling wealthier than when they did. And they're buying things now in the here and now, the things that they need, that they want to buy to entertain themselves, educate themselves, you know, educate their kids. Uh, you know, so what we're seeing is what I call discretionary divergence, where we're not spending our traditional discretionary money in the same way. So even those who are working or aren't collecting unemployment, we're feeling wealthier. We have more discretionary money in our pockets because we're not spending money on kids going to daycare, concerts or movies or things to entertain ourselves. We're not traveling, vacation. All those things are putting extra money in our pocket. We're feeling wealthier. But here's what's going to happen. As when the government stimulus checks run out and, when, and if they don't put in another stimulus package, there goes that feeling of extra income. What's this mean for retailers, for Macy's, for The Gap? Uh, are they going to be able to, to maintain in that environment? The, the biggest surprise has been the ability for the consumer to actually carry the load of keeping some of the retailers that were so vulnerable, keep them afloat. And that, that really has been the big piece. Retailers have done a good job of being able to convert some of their business to online while stores were shuttered. And now that stores are starting to come back, you're starting to see online recede a little bit and, and certainly the store levels start to pick up again. But the big surprise has been the consumer's willingness to be able to support retail, to be able to drive some business into the market that people didn't expect. I, I can tell you, I've been doing this for well over 30 years. I did not anticipate the consumer to be as resilient as they certainly have shown us to be. Marshall Cohen at NPD Group. The federal government is trying for a coronavirus vaccine by January. What the Trump administration has called Operation Warp Speed aims to have a safe, effective, and plentiful vaccine by January 2021. It is an ambitious goal that senior administration officials said is reachable without cutting corners on safety or science. We're told there are 14 promising candidates that will be whittled to the most promising seven for the purposes of testing. And the hope is to have as many people as possible vaccinated by flu season next year. There was promising news today about a treatment. Scientists at the University of Oxford said today a low-cost steroid was found to reduce deaths for patients hospitalized with COVID-19. ABC News contributor Dr. Todd Ellerin joins us now from South Shore Health outside Boston. This seems significant. This is extremely important because, number one, this would be the first medication that is proven to have a survival benefit, meaning it decreases the number of deaths in patients with COVID-19. 
Um, we've seen other medications that have improved recovery time, but in, in a randomized control trial, we haven't seen a drug that's clearly been shown to decrease mortality. This is a big deal. Plus, this is a relatively inexpensive medication when you think of some of the other medications that are currently being tested in these randomized control trials. Any idea what it is about a steroid that would increase survivability from COVID? Yeah, that's really an important question, right? Because we want to know the mechanism behind it. I can tell you that we don't know for certain, but one of the um, things that we're seeing with COVID-19 is, is incredible amounts of inflammation that come with this, whether it's inflammation in the lungs, the blood vessels, the heart, the kidneys. This seems to be a, a very, a very systemic illness as far as inflammation. And we're even seeing it in children with that mysterious inflammatory syndrome that we're seeing rarely in them. So steroids are anti-inflammatories. They work to quiet the immune system down. Uh, So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that we think a lot of the pathology with this virus occurs in the blood vessels that are near the lungs or blood vessels that are near other organs or the heart, for example. So when we call that vasculitis, inflammation of the blood vessels, actually within the wall of the blood vessels, and one of the cornerstones of treatment in vas- with vasculitis in general is steroids. So it's possible that that's another benefit from the, the dexamethasone, which is the specific type of steroid that was studied. ABC News contributor Dr. Todd Ellerin at South Shore Health. Study authors said the steroid was only good for those who were already receiving respiratory therapy. Those who were not hospitalized or on oxygen had no benefit from it. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know so many people are desperate to get back to work. But with COVID-19 rates climbing in at least 21 states, workers, many of them, are understandably concerned. What do we know about COVID-19 and workplace safety? Well, not that much. Uh, There's an important perspective that I just read in the New England Journal of Medicine by a Dr. Mark LaRochelle that really got my attention because we still haven't put a lot of these pieces together. But here's what we know so far. First of all, the term essential workers, they really have not received much formal guidance on the state level about how to protect themselves when they are at work. There's limited CDC data on work-related risks, and we do know, based on other published data, healthcare workers representing at least 11 percent of reported COVID cases, very high rates in people who work in transit, grocery, corrections operations, and women and minorities disproportionately represented in these jobs. So it's a major issue. Yeah, and we know that people benefit from discussions that help them assess what their workplace risks may be. What's the best way to do that, to have those conversations? Well, that's the thing is right now there are all these theories about who people should be having them with, their employer, their physician. I think the leading theories right now are you have to stratify people based on their individual risk as an individual. So do they have diabetes? Do they have obesity or another chronic medical condition? You also need to stratify them based on what they do at work. Are they a hospital worker, a transit worker, um, other worker at high risk for contact with the public or with people with COVID-19? And you also, of course, have to include age 
and ethnic mm-hmm. background on this. And the truth is just a lot of people are going to be quickly returning to work without any real former formal guidelines in place. So what do we still need to learn? Well, people are figuring this out literally in real time as it's happening. I think the things we don't yet know is what is the safest plan to, for work re-entry. We don't know yet if legislation will evolve eventually to help address these issues. And then the financial component, we don't know how people who are considered high risk at work that may have to stay home for some time can be financially protected. So there is a lot to work out, pardon the pun. All right, Dr. Jen, we will check back in with you a little later in the show. Thank you. As states across the country emerge from this shutdown, some areas are already experiencing a significant surge in coronavirus cases. On Sunday, South Carolina reported a record 799 new COVID cases, breaking the previous daily record set just two days earlier. Here to discuss the state of his city is Mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, Stephen Benjamin. Mayor Benjamin, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. And we know, like so many other cities, your city, Columbia, has seen thousands of protesters take to the streets over the past few weeks. What role do you believe these protests have played in the rise in coronavirus cases there? Sure. Well, we've seen a a, a precipitous rise in cases, as you indicated, the record day on Sunday, uh, almost 4,400 cases over the last uh, seven days. Uh, Yesterday, we saw another 582 I think the the spike we're seeing now probably may be more related to the Memorial Day weekend, but um, it's no it's no doubt in my mind that we're going to probably see the the uh, uh, the protests of the last few weeks uh, will 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 indeed contribute. Uh, while the vast majority of our protesters are wearing masks or they're that socially conscious, uh, the reality is that physical distancing is much is a much more effective tool to control the spread of the virus. So I, I'm 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 concerned about the role that uh, the protests. Though the cause is just, and, and I'm so excited with the, the, the new era of young leadership we're seeing all across the country, uh, we've got to be smart about what we do to protect this uh, this one temple God's given all of us. Yeah, we just don't want there to be a, a medical price to pay in all of this. So what is Columbia doing to help spread this, stop the spread of the virus as you remain open for business? Sure. We've been doing a lot. You know, we, we believe strongly that um, that testing is, is still the baseline. Uh, testing gives you good data. Uh, data gives you an intelligence and allows you to make good policy. We started early uh, before the World Health Organization declared the, the coronavirus a pandemic, um, uh, instituted the stay home, uh, stay safe uh, order that was then, of course, superseded by the governor's order. We've been focusing on the TTSI strategy, uh, testing, uh, contact tracing and supported isolation. Um, we have probably this, this weekend upcoming, maybe the largest testing effort the state has seen um, happening here in, in Columbia. We've uh, helped. Uh, obviously, the, the, the other side of, 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 of social distancing is that in the consumer-based economy, we've seen a, a rather challenging economic situation emerge. We've, we've supported our small businesses while also putting into place some rules uh, that if people want to reopen back here in Columbia, uh, we've asked them all to sign a resilient Columbia pledge. We've had 215 businesses in our downtown alone, make some commitments uh, to some best practices that allow them to reopen safely. And hopefully we'll watch that number continue to grow. That's just over the past uh, week or so. But we, we, we've had a rather um, statewide haphazard strategy approaching the, um, the pandemic. And, and as a result, uh, like a lot of other states, we're seeing a, a significant rise now, uh, nearly 20,000 cases identified, according to our state Department of Health and Environmental Control, 86 percent our population um, um, that may have it, don't, they don't know about it. So that means you're probably talking about more like 140,000 cases statewide. 
It is a grave concern, um, and, and we're trying to continue to push and promote good public health uh, information. We believe in science here in Colombia, and we, we continue to push that message. Yeah, Mayor, you attended the city's A Million Man March for Justice. Yeah. The turnout was great. You said you saw people wearing masks and doing their best to adhere to safety guidelines there. But is there a chance that South Carolina could shut down if you see those COVID-19 cases continue to rise? I know that the... Um, the, and I'll just be frank, just uh, listening to the governor's statements, uh, the, uh, the, the political will on the statewide level is not there uh, to, to do so. I mean, uh, even in the wake of the, the rather uh, significant rise we saw last week, uh, the governor decided to open bowling alleys uh, as, as he was literally at the same press conference. Uh, so uh, it's probably going to require uh, cities and, and, and counties leading from the front again, just as we did earlier in the pandemic. And we're going to we're just going to have to um, make some some really measured decisions. It's, it's difficult. I mean, we're talking about a, a 4.8 percent drop in, in gross domestic product. We've watched the federal government uh, go about three trillion more uh, into debt, probably with more coming. Uh, so we realize there's an economic component here. But the reality is that is that we'll never have a stable economy until our, our, our consumers, our citizens feel comfortable truly reentering the economy. And that won't happen until we get our arms around the pandemic. So we got, we got, we got work to do. Now, we know you've put in so much already, and we appreciate your time and your efforts there for your city mayor, Stephen Benjamin. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. God bless you. Now, the extraordinary challenge facing summer camps as this coronavirus pandemic rolls on. Here is one creative initiative to turn traditional fun and memories into a virtual experience this year. My name is Christy Coe. I'm the executive director of the Fiverr Children's Foundation. One of our core programs is Camp Fiverr, which is a residential summer camp in Poolville, New York. Fiverr is a nonprofit youth development organization that exists to close the opportunity gap for children in New York. And the way that we do that is that we provide a residential summer camp experience and also year-round out-of-school time programs and mentoring for young people specifically focused on social and emotional learning development. When the pandemic hit, I know that all summer camps were faced with a difficult decision. Um, Is there any way that we can open? The best decision for us was to not open our traditional in-person camp this year. We summoned all of our creative energy and we created something that we're calling Camp Wi-Fiber, which is a virtual alternative to Camp Fiber. It's a way that we can keep the community together. And a good friend recently told me, you can't cancel camp because you can't cancel a community. Some of the important things we were thinking about when we were developing the virtual alternative, uh, Camp Wi-Fi, were things like social interaction. The kids will have access to opportunities like connecting with their cabin counselor, with their peers. They'll have the opportunity to take elective classes that they have chosen. They can take Things like soccer or origami or even hiking. We found a way to bring those activities to them virtually. Access to technology is definitely one of the barriers that we considered when we were launching uh, Camp Wi-Fi. We're working with our IT company and also some other organizations to, um, to provide the technology for them. My hope as we head into the summer and the camp season is that Um, Our staff are going to continue to be as innovative as they can be and that we're going to bring to our young people a a unique opportunity for them to stay connected to a community and to still have a really meaningful and important experience. 
connection. That's what it's all about. Coming up next here, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton joins us with answers to your coronavirus questions and the frontline doctors spending long days trying to manage an intensifying caseload in a coronavirus hotspot. We're back in a moment. Bringing America back. What you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And we are joined by Dr. Jen Ashton once again with a roundup of the questions you've been sending us about the coronavirus. Dr. Jen, thank you. Yep. And we'll start with the first one. What do we know about the FDA's decision to remove the emergency authorization for the use of hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19? It really came down to risk versus benefit, Amy. And the FDA, at this point, assessing the available data and finding that the risks of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine outweighed any benefits in COVID-19 patients. Now, they're still leaving it up to the discretion of the individual physician. And this removal does not have anything to do with patients or people who take these drugs for malaria or lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. Another question about a headline today. The CDC has said that people with underlying conditions are 12 times more likely to die from COVID-19. What constitutes an underlying condition? And this is such a common question, but I think first to step back from this Lancet paper, this is really important. I think of it as a filter in the who, what, where, when, why, and how of COVID. So the who is obviously what they're looking at. And they're finding that patients with heart disease 32% of the cases documented here in the U.S., diabetes, 30%, chronic lung disease, 18%. We also know that age and obesity really, really stack the deck for complications and deaths. So before you can target prevention, intervention, possibly treatment, you have to know the individual risks because it's not one size fits all. And speaking of that, we're seeing, obviously, so many rises in infectious rates here in the United States throughout 21 different states. And yet, this next question asks, and it's very interesting, what factors have contributed to New Zealand's low infection rate? Well, a lot of eyes on New Zealand right now for many reasons. Um, and I think there, it's not a simple answer. There are many factors at play. First of all, they only have 5 million people and citizens there. But in about seven weeks, their prime minister declaring they've eradicated this virus, I think largely based on three key factors. First of all, the measures they took were swift, they were aggressive, and they really, from the get-go, did not play around. Then the people, the population of New Zealand, you know, aside from making a sweeping generalization, they tend to be pretty stoic, and they were unfazed by these aggressive measures. And then a lot of attention being given to their leader, their prime minister, who learned a tremendous amount about communication in times of crisis from their past shootings, She showed empathy from the beginning, and she individualized the toll of COVID deaths. The country mourned every single COVID death. They recognized these people by name. And I think all those things together really led to their success. Wow. All right. Thank you for that, Dr. Jen. We appreciate it. You can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. And as we were just talking about states across the country reopening, and yet, unfortunately, some are seeing significant increases in new COVID-19 cases. Arizona has become the new national hotspot for the virus with an explosion of new infections, pushing some hospitals to the limit. Joining me now with more, Dr. Matt Hines from the Tucson Medical Center. And Dr. Hines, I understand you were just in the middle of treating COVID-19 patients when you took a quick break to talk to us. So thank you so much. We certainly appreciate that. So as you're treating these patients, as they're brought into the medical center, what do you think is behind this sudden rise in infections? I think, uh, and Amy, thanks for having me. I I think it's unmistakable 
that um, the reopening of my state of Arizona back on May 15th um, really did precipitate that, uh, that rise, the, the start to this surge about three weeks after the reopening, which is exactly what you would expect uh, based on the virus and based on its behavior, a couple weeks to have folks mingle, um, spread the infection, and then you end up about with a week of symptoms to the point where folks start to need the hospital, and that's when the hospitalizations increase. All of that started almost precipitously, at least in my experience, on June 3rd and 4th, just about 21 days after we reopened the state. And so I think that's, that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. And what are you seeing, Dr. Hines, from people coming into the hospital? What condition are they in? Wide range, wide range. I have uh, folks in their mid to low 20s, um, all the way up to folks in their 80s and 90s. And sometimes the folks in their 20s don't do well. Unfortunately, we, we you know, um, I know that we've, we've lost patients recently in that age range. And so the, the, the virus really, it's, we can't predict who's going to have that really adverse respiratory collapse, that, that um, cytokine storm we've all heard about. We, we don't really know who's going to be affected by it. We know it generally seems to be more so folks with other conditions like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, but we can't be sure. Yeah. So um, the, a higher volume is coming in the door for sure. Yeah. And um, some of these people are very sick. And speaking to the higher volume and people being very sick, I'm curious about the toll it's not only taking on you and your staff, but other people who need to use the hospital for non-COVID-19 related emergencies. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's the real danger. If we truly get to the point, um, we're very close. You know, uh, there's a very few hospital ICU beds in southern Arizona right now. But if we if we max out those ICU beds in any region, then folks coming in having a massive heart attack or having a massive stroke or or any other very serious critical condition that would require an ICU will not have one. So this isn't about just COVID. And that's what I think is so important for people to understand that putting on that mask and social distancing and, and staying home and watching a movie instead of actually going to a movie, which you can now do in my state, would be so much better to help everyone and help our hospitals and communities be able to treat everyone who needs help. Right. What has your day been like, uh, Anna, and as it compared to three weeks ago to now, what, what is it like from start to finish? Overall volume is, is up, as I mentioned, and these people are just really sick. You know, there, there's a lot of stuff going wrong with them at the same time, and we have to do a lot of balancing and a lot of, you know, intensive uh, work, and we have to and we have to do it quickly. So it's um, it, there's, there's a lot going on. And um, the regular folks that are having heart attacks and strokes and every other thing, they're all still coming in, too. So it's on top of that. And um, that's it's you know, it, it's a lot. And definitely the volume is, is one of the biggest deals, I think, that, that we're seeing here. Uh, and in terms of my shift, I work overnight. So I've been up for a long time and I'll be going to bed here in a couple of hours uh-huh. once I get done with my shift. I'm curious about your answer to this. Should what's happening there in your state of Arizona be a big warning sign to other states? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and New York. New York should have been a major warning sign for us in Arizona. And I guess every state's going to just have to go through these mistakes themselves. But it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we could we could get some you know, rules for compulsory mask wearing in public spaces right now. Um, we could have regions or the state, you know, maybe look at some modified new stay-at-home order. We can actually make sure that our ICUs don't get overwhelmed and, and beyond capacity, putting the entire community in state at risk. And, and I truly hope our leaders will do that.
It is not too late to slow the spread. Dr. Hines, thank you for all that you are doing. We certainly hope you get some rest soon. So nice to have you with us. And again, we are so appreciative of you and, and your staff. My pleasure, Amy. Thank you. Don't show up. Don't come out. The Black Lives Matter movement and protest against police violence have energized young people across this country to get out and vote. But Mike Muse, host at Sirius XM Radio, says voting strategically is the true key. And he's come up with a revolutionary system called Vote Quadrant to teach voters how they can vote to combat police brutality. And he's here to tell us all about it. Please welcome Mike Muse. Mike, thanks so much for being with us, because I love talking about this system. It doesn't just encourage people to vote, but like I said, to vote strategically to end police brutality. So tell us how it works. Yes, I want us to create this system in order to be the answer to the unrest that we're seeing on the streets. And the common response to the unrest we're seeing in the street is just to vote. Well, you know, it's not enough, Amy, just to vote for your senator. Your senator is not going to be the one who's able to convene a grand jury in order to bring the police into courtroom. Uh, your local, you know, elected congressperson isn't going to be able to convene a grand jury to figure out what the indictments are. And so I determined that the four municipal offices that do that are the mayor, the police chief or commissioner appointed by the mayor that we elect, the district attorney, and then the judge. The district attorney is the one, as you know all too well, is the one who decides whether or not they should convene a grand jury. They're the ones who decide how they fight inside that grand jury in order to bring forward an indictment. And then the district attorney is the one who actually takes the case into the courtroom to fight on behalf of the citizens, to fight on behalf of the injustice that was done, and to fight on behalf to make sure equal justice is served for those who have been wronged by police brutality and police misconduct. And then the judge. The judge is the most critical part, as you know, because the judge sets the tone of the courtroom. The judge actually determines what evidence gets admitted into the case. And then also, too, the most important part that we don't talk enough about as our society is that the judge actually gives the instructions to the jury to deliberate on and how they should determine the verdict and the outcome of the case. That's so important because often judge juries have questions and they want clarifications and then they have to go to the judge. And so it's important that we have a judge there who believes in equal justice, who will have their blindfold on in order to determine and serve the people that has elected them to be there. It's a system, it's strategic, and also, too, it's educational. It really teaches individuals how to understand the four squares of this quadrant and how it plays a role into stopping police brutality and police misconduct. Yeah, it explains so much for people and it makes it very specific. We're going to break down those four quadrants. The first one, we'll start with mayors and police commissioners because they go hand in hand. How should we apply the quadrant filter you have to these candidates to make the best decision on who to vote for? That's such a great question. A lot of times we say just vote for your mayor, right? But as a mayoral candidate, if you care about police brutality, if you care about ending police misconduct, you need to interview the mayor as if he is applying for the job of police commissioner and or police chief, however it's called in your city. You need to ask the mayoral candidate questions like, how important is cultural competency in a police commissioner? How important is it that the police officers who are patrolling the neighborhoods are of the neighborhoods? Talk to us a little bit how you will examine the police examination, the psychological examination. Does the examination need to be changed any? And then also, too, how then do you assign police officers to neighborhoods and to precincts? Is there termination? Is it based on data? Is it based upon the psychological exams that we've done? And then how do you believe in community police 
relations. How important is it to you to show up in community without your guns, without your badge, right? But really understanding and relating to the community. All right, next, how do you apply the filter to district attorneys? Yes, the district attorney is all about how will you determine independent investigations separate from the police force? Because we have to understand, as you know too well, that the district attorney and the police officers, they work hand in hand to provide evidence that is needed. So it's important to ask, what type of special investigation will you run? How will you appoint individuals to oversee that relationship? How can we account for transparency? And how is it important in terms of how do you understand the community and the needs of the community to bring forward equal justice? And finally, how should we apply the quadrant filter to judges? This is the most important part because, as you know, a judge doesn't have to, can't go through a litmus test because you hope that the judge will rule based on the evidence that's presented before them and how they're interpreting the law. We can't determine that ahead of time because this isn't minority report with Tom Cruise, so we can't predict the crimes in the future. But what you can do, though, Amy, is understand the constitution of the judge. You know, where are they from? What are the last books that they read? Where are the last concerts that they attended? Really asking questions that get to the humanity of them and really understanding their lived experiences because it's their lived experiences and how they will interpret the law in terms of how they will handle their courtroom and then how they will issue sentencing. Yeah, Mike, I mean, this is so great because you and I both know how important asking the right questions can be to making the best decision. We certainly appreciate all the work you're doing and the message you're spreading. Thank you. Thank you so much. While statues representing white supremacy are now being removed, murals and other signage celebrating the Black Lives Matter movement are popping up all across the country. Joining us now is the incredible man who designed the Black Lives Matter Plaza street sign. Sign fabricator, technician and rapper Wayne Bennett Pettis joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us, Wayne. And tell us how this all came to life. I know it was a pretty remarkable moment for you. Yes, it was. Uh, just mostly just a situation of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was sitting at work and my supervisor comes up to me and says he has a very important special project he wants me to do. It's, he was very excited about himself. And once he explained to me that the mayor wanted a very particular street sign, we we were ecstatic. You know, we, uh, once he told me exactly what it was, I, I jumped up out of the seat and immediately went to go design it. How did it feel to be asked to design for the Black Lives Matter movement, of all the signs you could be creating, how about this one? I was extremely proud. Like, I, it not, well, not only is it a once-in-a-lifetime chance, but it also was something that doesn't normally happen. So the fact that it happened, not only happened, but happened to me, was a, was a great gift to me. I want to ask you, how do you want people to feel when they see that sign and they read those words? It's not supposed to be a message of hate. Um, I see a lot of people trying to take it and twist it into something that's not. It's more of a message of a declaration saying that we are trying to say that all lives matter when black lives matter as well. And we're not trying to suggest that white lives don't matter or, or any other particular lives don't matter. It's more of a suggestion that we want to be included in that statement of all lives matter. I have to ask, how does it feel to be such an integral part of American history? Uh, I'm so proud and so happy. Um, again, I'm ecstatic about it. I never thought this would have happened, and I'm just thrilled that it did. Well, we're thrilled you joined us today. We certainly appreciate you. Thank you, Wayne, for being with us and being a part of this historical movement. No problem, and thank you.
<laughs> We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. So, Amy, today my final thoughts are really on our mindset. Um, you can't have a healthy body without a healthy mind in medicine, and so often we fail to connect the two. But a recent study, which was just published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia, done in the U.K., all about the power or the potential impact of actually negative thinking. They looked at people over 55 years of age, followed them for about two years, and they found an association between what they called repetitive negative thinking long-term, not in the short-term, and links to future cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. So I think this raises some really important questions that we can all think about right now, which is, can the benefit of mental training, mindfulness, even things that psychologists recommend to us all the time, singing, smiling, yeah. reading, um, making productive lists, consciously replacing a negative thought with a positive, how impactful can that be right now? Because these are tough times, we will get through them, but we have to remember the positive potential of a good mindset. I love that. Thank you very much, Dr. Jen. We appreciate you. Yeah. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.